Anyways, let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask your most Holy Spirit to be with us, to guide us, and to help us to hear what you want us to hear out of Holy Scripture. It is not always what is said, but what, it's, what it means to us as individuals, because our faith is an individual type of faith. And we only express it through others. So help us then to understand what all of this means, particularly as we continue our study of Hebrews and James. So we thank you for this time together. And we thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. Before I forget, uh, and before we get into the subject of today's class, for those of you who uh, are ordering the CDs, and have a CD for last week. There was some heavy scratching right at the beginning. I don't know how or why. It cleared up within a minute or so. So, you know, don't be discouraged by listening to it because it's kind of rough on the ears. The other thing is that a CD will only hold 80 minutes of voice. And, of course, our class runs an hour and a half, which is 90 minutes, and sometimes a little longer than that. So, I do have to edit out some things. And so, if you come across, when you're listening to the CD, if you come across, you know, an abrupt change, I try to be very careful about how I edit so that it doesn't sound like I go from A to Z, you know, but... uh there are times when I don't have a choice. And so, if you're also listening for your voice somewhere, if you've asked, uh, you know, a real important question and it's not there, <laughs> well, I guess I didn't feel it was important as something else, you know. So, uh, that's kind of the, the background on the CDs. Anyways, so, let us get into our discussion of James. Or, or Hebrews, really. Um, today we are going to begin the discussion of the main part of this letter to the Hebrews, and that is Jesus as high priest. Now, to that, to us today, that probably doesn't mean much. But you've got to think about the people to whom this was originally written or to address if it was a sermon. The priest, the high priest at the time of Christ was the most important person in Jewish society. But it wasn't always that way. So I want to go back and give you a little bit of the history of the priesthood and how it evolved over a period of time. For those of you who have this uh, handout, it's not important that you go to it now. But you will find that in the first part, or the first 500 years, roughly, of Jewish society, or Judaism in general, there was no structure whatsoever. There was no law, there was no Torah, there was no leadership. They subsisted solely on the idea of 
one true God who made all of creation and made us as individuals. And that was something that was brought up beginning with Abraham and it existed until the time of Moses releasing or getting the Israelite or the Jewish people released from Egypt and until the time of the Ten Commandments, okay, which is then actually the beginning of the second period here. But the first 500 years, there was no priesthood, there was no structure, and so forth and so on. And so what kind of makes me wonder at times when I read uh, particularly Jewish history is they are so intent on the obeying the laws of the Torah, that is the first, the rules and so forth that grew up through the first five books of the of the Bible. And, you know, and yet they forget that in the first 500 years of their existence as a nation, those things didn't exist. And so people couldn't really obey them in the way that later Jewish people were insisting that they must be obeyed. So they kind of forgot, in a way, that idea. The priesthood in itself came about very gradually because as the Jewish people came out of Egypt and as they were about to enter the promised land, God parceled out certain portions of the promised land to each of the 12 tribes that were in existence there, the 12 tribes of Jacob. Remember, Jacob's family is the one that really established the Jewish colony, you might say, as it migrated down to Egypt in the first place. And the whole idea is that it was important to them that they remain within their own tribal um, existence and location. And each of the tribes, the twelve sons of Jacob, sort of governed their own group of people. And as it expanded and got larger and larger, the rules and so forth uh, began to change a little bit. But one of the things that God wanted to do is to keep the people sort of together. So when they went down to Egypt through the uh, good graces, you might say, of the second youngest son, Joseph, they were sort of herded into the land of Goshen. And it was actually the best land they were looked upon as visitors. They were given a lot of uh, special privileges and so forth and so on. But as time went on, the people that originated that whole movement died out. And later, pharaohs did not understand the beginnings because this was never written down at that time. And so they eventually became such a numerous group of people that the pharaoh thought 
that if they ever rose up against the Egyptians, it would create a tremendous problem. So they became slaves, you might say, and that's the origin of this whole idea of the Jewish people crying to God because they were made slaves of the Egyptians and it was so unfair and they couldn't do this and they couldn't do that. So God heard their cry and through the efforts of Moses, they brought him out. You all know that story. I'm just trying to get to a point, okay? As they wandered through the desert, of course, they had a number of problems. And you can imagine a large number of people migrating through the desert over a period of time. Now, the Ten Commandments event, that is God giving the Ten Commandments to the Jewish people through Moses, happened within a very short time of their release or their escape, whatever you want to call it, from Egypt. You know, within, say, three months or so at Mount Sinai. That began the structure, you might say, of the Jewish people. It was the first written down laws that they had. Now, they had other common sense rules and so forth, and Moses set up a lot more of common sense rules, primarily the dietary laws. But the uh, Ten Commandments was really the first God-given laws and rules to mankind through Moses to the Jewish people. And let's advance a little bit more uh, through the uh, problems that existed or were created by Moses going up and down the mountain so many times. Uh, you know, they uh, had the molten calf problem. You, ever, you all know this, that story there where Moses was gone for 40 days or more and they thought he was, you know, never going to come back. So they wanted something to hold them together. Uh, they wanted something to worship like the Egyptians had. So they developed this molten calf. And Aaron says, well, you know, the people were going to stone me if I didn't do it. So I had to do it. Well, that sound looked like a real weakness on Aaron's part, but so be it. There were other problems, such as the rebellion at Mirabah and Massa over the lack of water and food and so forth and so on. But eventually, Moses brought him to the brink of coming to the promised land. All right. But he was told, because of his own uh, problems and his age and so forth, that he would not enter the promised land, that it would be up to uh, Caleb and Joshua to bring them over, along with those people, of course, that um, died out all during that time period of the wandering around in there. Okay. And when they entered into the promised land, and this is in the book of Joshua, uh, they were each assigned a certain port portion of the land so that they could stay within that portion as a tribe. But the only tribe that did not get a portion 
of land was the Levites. And that was because their job was to be the priest to minister to the people and they were to live among all of the remaining uh, tribal lands. All right, so the Levites didn't get anything. The other two that didn't get anything, you might say, <coughs> the names escape me because there's so many of them that I'm <laughs> trying to think about. But anyways, what is important here is that is where the idea of priesthood developed within the Jewish nation was through the Levites and Aaron was their head, but he was not called high priest at the time. All right. And they became the nucleus of priests. Now, the whole idea of priests was similar, but not the same, as we have today. They were to administer those things that emanated from the temple. Now, they didn't have a temple until Solomon came along, but they did have the portable temple. And that was started with Moses again, building the Ark of the Covenant. And their whole story is in the book of Exodus, where Moses was told to build this fancy box, he might say, that was laden with gold and had wings on both sides and a, a sort of a seat in the middle, which became sort of the mercy seat. And what was in it was the Ten Commandments, the staff of Aaron, the one that struck the water and, the, you know, where the waters parted and they were allowed to go through the Red Sea on dry land, and a couple jars of the manna. And that was housed in a fancy tent. And so throughout the Old Testament, you will see the word tent, but they don't mean tent as we think about it for camping. It was a, temp, a tent that was used as the portable tabernacle or temple. And it was the priest that ministered to them, to the people, after, of course, Moses died. Well, that became sort of a ministerial position that was important up to the time of the Babylonian captivity. And once the Babylonians, or Babylon, had conquered the Jewish people, and destroyed Jerusalem in the year 587 B.C. The whole idea of uh, the temple was destroyed, and they, the majority of the people, were carted off to Babylon. Well, they couldn't understand for a while why did God allow this to happen. God promised to protect them and so forth and so on, uh, and he did protect them for, you know, 1,500 years in various times and places. But why now? Why did he allow them to get into such a um, predicament? 
And it was finally decided that it was because of their own sinfulness. If they read back some of their own writings, they would understand that it was their own sinfulness that actually caused God to punish them in this way. And so they decided, because they had the book of Deuteronomy, and through the efforts of the prophet Ezekiel, they began to read the book of Deuteronomy, uh, particularly chapters 9 through 26, which is the sort of the main part of it. Uh, and that's where most of the laws of the Torah come from. All right? Now, those laws are taking the Ten Commandments and kind of exploding them down into very minute points. Um, and, of course, there were a lot of other things that came along as well. But the priesthood at the time of Babylon became more important because they were the only rulers at the time. The king had been murdered or executed, whatever. And so they didn't have any other rulers. So the idea of the priest became the rulers. And gradually, the idea of a high priest was developed from that point on. So we're talking about 6th century B.C. Actually, uh, as it went forward, it would be 5 and then 4 and so forth. Um, So the old uh, idea of priesthood took uh, a different... um, direction, you might say, a point of view, more of civil and social leadership, uh, more so than in the the idea of just religious leadership. And when they migrated back to Israel, the idea of high priest became the most important person in Jewish society and in the religious aspect, all right? Yes, there was a king appointed by first the Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans, but he was always sort of a puppet. You mean the whole idea of Herod, Herod the Great. He did a lot of good things for the people, but his sons and grandsons, you know, they collaborated with the Romans, uh, and they really did not look out for the people because they really didn't have any true voice. It was the high priest at that time of Christ that really took over. Okay. So when we talk now about the high priest, we're talking about a time period probably after the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., And the writer of this book is now trying to equate Jesus as being the one and only high priest. Because in Judaism, that was wiped out with the destruction of the temple and by the uh, demands, you might say, of Rome. All of that was wiped out. But Jesus now is being lifted up as being the high priest who is far more important 
than what was formerly the high priest's role. Because those people, although they did a good job and they did what they were supposed to do, and they were sincere in most cases of honoring God and trying to uh, educate the people, they were still human beings. They still had faults and failures. But Jesus now is the perfect high priest. And that is what the author here is trying to get across. Is that he was made so not by uh, a rule of the people, but by a command of God. So he, his job really uh, is as high priest because it was the role that was given to him by God in his part of God's plan of salvation. Yes, Joe? Well, the idea of the priesthood, that he is asking when was the priesthood introduced and how did it come about? Uh, Well, it came about, you might say, right from the time when the Israelites came into the promised land, way back at the time of Joshua and Caleb. And it was started with by God himself. Uh, by appointing the Levite men as the first priests. All right. And then it was uh, handed down in a hetero... Well, you know what I mean. My tongue got tied up there. Hereditary. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry? Aaron was definitely the priest. Aaron was, yes, the first priest. Yes. Well, yes, but not quite in the same way as the Levites after they came into the promised land. No, not quite the same way. He was designated, uh, it was more of an honorary thing at that time. Because they didn't have any structure of religious worship at that time. No, Aaron and and Aaron died before Moses, and Moses died just before the people entered the Promised Land. Remember, he was taken up onto Mount Nebo and shown the Promised Land, but he did not enter it. Yeah. Remember, he was uh, approximately 120 years old. So, uh, <laughs> uh, if you can go by the three times of 40 that is mentioned in his life. Okay. So, yeah, remember, 40 is not a precise uh, period of time. Okay. All right. So, that's the sort of the background uh, that I'd like you to kind of keep in mind as we talk about the high priest and how the author of this letter is referring to Christ as the high priest. Now, it's interesting because what the author of this letter does is he sort of mentions something and gives you a little bit of idea, but then he changes the subject and goes on to something else and then comes back later 
and goes into a lot more detail. And you have this two or three times. Uh, priesthood is one of them, okay? Uh, and then the idea of Melchizedek is another. He sort of introduces the character of Melchizedek uh, here in chapter 4, but then uh, it isn't until chapter 7 that he gets into a little more detail. But it's important in a way that you understand uh, the idea of priesthood, because once we come to Melchizedek, when it talks about Melchizedek, who was the priest of Midian or Salem, uh, then you will uh, be able to connect it all, I hope. Okay. All right. Chapter 4, verses 14 on. Let's go into that. We, uh, the first part of chapter 4, we talked about last week, the idea of the Sabbath rest. Okay. Now, the Sabbath rest, and I just want to review a little bit of that, um, has three different meanings, but they all uh, sort of dovetail into one idea. The word, the Sabbath rest, actually comes from the book of Exodus, where God rested on the seventh day after six days of creation. Now, that doesn't mean that he sat back and did nothing. And a lot of people point out that even though we should honor God on our Sunday, and that's another little subject there, but the idea of honoring God by not doing anything of undue work, um, a lot of people will say, well, God rested on the seventh day, and they have the impression that God did absolutely nothing. Well, unfortunately... Uh, if you think about babies being born, people dying, uh, a lot of things go on on Sunday, and therefore God is behind all of it, so he's continually working and keeping us in mind. All right. But the word rest comes from that idea of God resting from the idea of Creation, the work of creation. The second uh, point that is made in reference to God's rest is the idea of the promised land in itself. And he's saying in uh, verse, I mean, Psalm 95, that because of their disobedience and their rebellion against Moses and Aaron, at God himself, uh, at Mirabai Masa, that those people who were involved in that rebellion, as well as the people involved uh, in the molten calf uh, problem, uh, would not enter the promised land. Now, he didn't slay them, uh, but he, that was the whole purpose of wandering in the desert for 40 years, or a long period of time, is that those people... Uh, would die in that time period, and therefore they would not enter into the promised land. When we get into the 
uh, New Testament time period and the New Testament covenant, the whole idea of rest then transfers to our time of eternal rest with God in heaven. So you have those three different time periods. And, you know, that's kind of what has to be kept in mind as we read through the rest of this book here. I like, in some ways, the idea of little snippets of introduction uh, by the author here, and then he changes the subject and goes on to something else and then comes back. You have uh, several of those here. Okay. Uh, on uh, verse 14, we get this whole idea of uh, priesthood. Okay. It says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Now, our confession in this particular case is a strange word. Uh, it doesn't mean here going to confession, you know, to the priest. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. You know, it's been whatever since my last confession. That's not what we're talking about here. The whole idea of confession is once we have accepted Christ as our Lord and, you know, given it, given it serious thought, a lot of people just kind of go through the motions and it never really bothers me because you can almost see it at times. They're just going through the motions and they don't really understand what they're doing or why they're doing it. And we'll get to that a little later when he talks about uh, a mature faith. Right? The whole idea of confession is, in this case, an acceptance an acceptance of our faith. I want to turn this around and use the other side. Because it's important that we understand the whole idea of confession being not the best word, probably, more of acceptance of the idea of Christ being our Lord and Savior and who he is for us. Not what's going on necessarily in the church. That's later on. That's good and that has its place. But if we do not have a firm foundation of what it means to us, then we're only going through the motions. But acceptance leads to hope. Hope of the future. Hope of eternal life. Faith in itself. And I want to really, this is a little bit of a diagram, but Acceptance leads to faith, right? Faith leads to hope. Hope leads to joy. Joy leads to love. And love leads to 
holiness. Does that make sense? Can you see the progression? And that's what he's talking about later on here. So as for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has similarly been tested in every way, yet without sin. We went through this last week. So let us confidently approach the throne of grace to receive mercy and to find grace for timely help. All right. The whole idea of hope is in that part of it right there. It says then, every high priest is taken from among men, and they are human beings, that is, at the time of Christ and before, and made their representative before God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And the book of Leviticus talks about all these different sacrifices uh, that were common within Judaism. But one who has similarly been tested in every way, and we're talking now about Christ, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been similarly tested in every way and yet without sin. So let us confidently approach the throne of grace to receive mercy and to find grace for timely help. Now, grace is another word for the help of the Holy Spirit. We talked about angels uh, in a time meeting last week or the time before. The whole idea of angels was important to the early Judea, to early Jewish people, and to some degree right up through the very early part of Christianity. But once the Holy Spirit was released on the first Pentecost Sunday, you don't hear any more about angels. And I did a little bit of research. Someone asked me last week after class about doing some research on angels. And if you want to go through the whole book of the dictionary of the Bible, you will see that um, there's a lot of wording, but it all boils down to the fact that after the Joseph and Mary uh, you know, the angel appearing to Joseph and Mary, we don't have any more reference to angels in the Bible. And in, uh, yes, Rita? Yes. After Jesus, uh, you know, Joseph and Mary, and Jesus, and after the release of the Holy Spirit, which was after Christ's death and resurrection. After, yeah, after the release of the Holy Spirit to mankind, there is no more mention of angels. And that is because angels were a way of God touching mankind or getting messages to mankind, or helping mankind, right? 
Now it is the role of the Holy Spirit and for us to work with the Holy Spirit. And that is even better than angels. And believe me, it does work. Let's go on. I have. Yes. There is no official. There is no official understanding of guardian angels. Okay. That is custom and tradition, but it is not an official teaching of the church. Well, look at it, look at it this way. Look at it this way. If you depend on your guardian angel, you're sort of ignoring the Holy Spirit, who is God himself. And the Holy Spirit is your guardian angel? Well, in a way, that might be a a way of looking at it. Uh, And it's probably a better way of looking at it than depending on some winged person, you know, (laughs) standing by you. No. What's that? Oh, yeah. Well... There's no harm in having prayers and thinking of it. But remember, the Holy Spirit is far more important than angels. Okay. (laughs) We don't want to vote for the guardian angels. Well, uh, I... I would rather have the Holy Spirit on my side. I would too. I would too. But maybe we can incorporate that without the guardian angel. He might be an assistant. The guardian angel might be an assistant of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, you know. He's been demoted. Yeah. All right, let's back up on. Yes, Elisa? They were, they were, yes, before the Holy Spirit was released to mankind. Now it is the Holy Spirit that speaks to us, okay? That's the official position of the church. Yes. Jose? What's that? In the lives of the saints, there are a lot of angels. No, no. Well, that—that's a personal revelation, but the church would not recognize that. Huh? Well, maybe so, but. <laughs> Uh, but it's not something that, you know, we're going to settle here. So let's, 
but let's let's move on. Let's move on. Verse verse uh, chapter five. Uh, every high priest is taken from among men and made their representative before God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. This is the priesthood of the Old Testament. He is able to deal patiently with the arrogant and erring, for he himself is beset by weakness, and so for this reason must make sin offerings for himself as well as for the people. This is the Jewish priesthood. No one takes this honor upon himself, but only when called by God just as Aaron was. In the same way, it was not Christ who glorified himself in becoming high priest, but rather the one to whom it was said of him, You are my son. This day I have begotten you. This is Psalm 2. Just as he says in another place, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, Psalm 110. In the days when he was in the flesh, that is Jesus now, he offered prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him. And he was heard because of his reverence. A lot of people uh, through the years have questioned me about Jesus crying. And I, you know, I, I don't understand their question because Jesus was human. You know, and he cried more than once. He cried at the time of Lazarus' death. He tr- cried in the Garden of Gethsemane and wept tears of blood. He cried when he entered Jerusalem for the last time. And he's up sort of in the elevated area of the mountain uh, just before the entry. And he's crying because he knows of the destruction of Jerusalem in the near future because of their lack of faith. So Jesus was human. And that was evident of his humanity. That he could sympathize with a lot of people because of his humanity. Since in the days when he was in flesh, he offered prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him, that was his father, God himself. And he was heard because of his reverence. Son though he was, and you remember we talked about the importance of the firstborn son. He learned obedience from what he suffered. Remember, because he was human. And when he was made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And declared by God, high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. We'll get into more of Melchizedek in chapter 7 next week. So, uh, this is how and why Jesus now merits and has earned the position of high priest to all who accept him as Lord and Savior.
he is not only God's representative, he is not only God's son, but he is the high priest of our efforts in our journey to holiness. I want to read something here that I think is extremely important. Where is my book? My book. How many of you have this book and have read it? Okay. Rediscover Catholicism by Matthew Kelly. All right, now, how many of you read it? Very few. It is probably one of the most important non-liturgical books that I have ever read. And I recommend it highly to everyone. And you can all, you can get it virtually anywhere for three to five dollars. Matthew Kelly. Matthew Kelly. Alright. I want to read what I think is probably the introduction to the most important chapter. This is chapter six. It's on this whole idea of hope, joy, love, which is a progression to holiness. Okay. And he talks about it in the terms of being an authentic life. In other words, not going through the motions, not trying to be somebody that you're not. Important point. It says the authentic life begins with a simple desire to be who God created us to be and cooperate with God by playing the part he has designed for us in human history. Important point. The adventure of salvation begins when we stop asking what's in it for me and turn humbly to God in our hearts and ask him what or how may I serve you? What work do you wish for me to do with my life? What is your will for my life? Every generation turns its back on God in its own way. Our modern, our modern era has revolted violently against the idea of God's will be done. This desperate to maintain the illusion of being in control of our lives, many modern Christians have either turned their backs on God or created a new spiritual rhetoric that allows them to determine selectively God's will for their lives. And yet, it is the very surrendering of our will to God's designs that characterizes the whole Christian struggle. The spiritual life is primarily concerned with this single dynamic of turning our individual will over to God. God calls each of us to live an authentic life. He has designed this life to perfectly integrate our legitimate needs, our deepest desires, and our unique talents. All right. 
again. He has designed this life, our individual lives, to integrate our legitimate needs, our deepest desires, and our unique talents. So, the more intimately and harmoniously these three are related, the more you become truly yourself. Beginning of chapter 6. Extremely important, I think. And it's the whole idea of what is... Well, there's there's another part, I think, if you don't mind me reading here on what is holiness. Um, um, I can't seem to find that offhand, but oh, we'll get that to that at another time. Right. And now, all right, in continuing with this idea of a progression, One leads to the other, which leads to the other, which ultimately leads to holiness here. It says, about this, we have much to say, and it is difficult to explain, for you have become sluggish in hearing. Although you should be teachers by this time, you need to have someone teach you again the basic elements of the utterance of God. He said, you need milk and not solid food. Uh, And they're not talking about earthly food. All right. The whole idea of milk and solid food representing uh, a progression, you know, from what we would call baby food into adult food. Uh, But it is actually a progression of growing up in our thinking. None of us are too old or too young to start doing that. We have to mature in our thinking. I've come across uh, throughout my years of teaching how many people went to good Catholic schools and were taught by the nuns in a, you know elementary level. And most of those were stories. And they have grown up with those stories and here they are mature adults but they're still thinking about their faith in the same way that the good nuns taught them way back in elementary school. And you can't do that and be a mature Catholic. You've got to understand that the whys and the wherefores behind all of those stories. And many people have never taken the time to do that. It's an unfortunate thing because ours is a beautiful, beautiful faith and the meanings behind it. The more I read, and I've, you know, I've got hundreds of books um, and a very extensive library that I had to go out and get another uh, bookcase to hold them recently. But the idea is, the more I read, the more deeply I get into our faith and the whys and wherefores. And I'm not talking about faith at the parish level because unfortunately the parish level has to teach, you know, sort of, you know, the top level of people, uh, 
doesn't get down into the depths of our faith as to where we should be. So this says, chapter 6, Therefore, let us leave behind the basic teaching about Christ in advance to maturity without laying the foundation all over again. The foundation, again, of course, is the Old Testament writings, the Old Testament teachings, and the Old Covenant. That was the foundation. That was good. I am not putting down in any way, shape, or form the Old Testament or its teachings. The Old Covenant that God made beginning with Abraham and renewed down through the ages uh, with all the important people of the Old Testament was important, was necessary, was good. But now that has been completed and fulfilled by Jesus Christ himself, God himself, because no one else could do it. And now we must go on. And we must mature by getting into the depths of what all of that meant. And still means. Let us not... uh, retrace or go over that all that information again uh, but let us move over and uh, go on here uh, and we shall do this if only God permits for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened and tasted and I was talking about the people in to whom this was originally addressed uh, who were waffling and thinking about giving up Christianity because it did not fulfill all of their wishes and their needs because they didn't go, they didn't dig enough into it. Uh, And he's saying, you've got to dig into what is in our faith. um, The whole idea of, says, repentance from dead works and faith in God. Instruction about baptisms and laying on of hands. All of that was in the past. Resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment is important. And we shall do this if only God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have been enlightened and tasted the heavenly gifts. And share in the Holy Spirit. And tasted the good works of God. And the powers of the age to come. And then fall away. And how many people that you all know, I'm sure, who have left the church altogether, not necessarily have gone to other Christian denominations, that's, you know, that's certainly a step backwards, but it is better than going uh, to nothing. All right. Or, you know, the Buddhism or whatever. Yes, Dick? No, 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 no. No. It's impossible for somebody who has already accepted the idea of Christ as Lord and Savior and then get that out of his mind and go back to something else. Yeah. 
That's that's what it's talking about. I know that the wording is a little on the light side, but that's the meaning behind this. You see, the people that this is addressed to, again, we have to constantly keep in mind because that's where our meaning comes from here. Uh, We have to constantly keep in mind that the people that this was originally addressed to were hoping that Christianity would provide them with salvation, but they missed the liturgies, they missed the temple, they missed, you know, all of the vestments and the celebrations and the great feast days of Judaism. Because at this point in time, that hadn't developed within Christianity yet. And so they missed all of that stuff and were thinking about going back because not only did they miss it, but remember, they were ostracized from their temple and in many cases from their own families. Uh, even until recent years, if a Jewish person uh, converted to Catholicism, oh, they, you know, uh, that was a horrible thing. And in many cases, not so much here on the West Coast, but on the East Coast, particularly in the New York, uh, New England area, uh, if you if a Jewish person converted to Christianity or particularly Catholicism, uh, they were just cut off. Uh, They were dead. They were gone. Forgotten. Uh, And, of course, at the time of Christ, it was even worse because they were persecuted and uh, murdered in most, you know, some way. They technically were not allowed to kill legally, but the Romans kind of looked the other way. Yeah. Until about the year 66 AD when the persecution between the Christians and the Jews got so out of hand uh, and became such a, a major problem within Israel as well as within Rome uh, that the Romans then stepped in and tried to squash it they didn't care who was at fault. They just wanted peace and, you know, stop the fighting, but ended up by destroying Jerusalem altogether along with the temple. And God allowed that because of the rejection of Christ. Verse 9. But we are sure in your regard beloved, of better things related to salvation, even though we speak in this way. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love you have demonstrated for his name by having served and continuing to serve the Holy Ones. We earnestly desire each of you to demonstrate the same eagerness for the fulfillment of hope until the end. Hope Again, until the end. (coughs) Excuse me. me. So that you may not become sluggish, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, are inheriting the promise. 
And now, what is that promise? Of course, the promise is eternal rest in heaven. Remember, I said the difference between the first covenant and the eternal covenant established by Christ was that the first covenant promised land, descendants, and God's eternal protection for the people of Judaism. But that was all sort of land-based, earthly-based promise. And that was good and necessary to begin. But now, as it talks about here, it has to mature into a much greater level. And the idea of spirituality. And so the promise is eternal life for those who accept and live according to the teachings of faith. And as it says here, beginning on verse 13, that there is no other promise. And there will be no other promise. Because what can God or anyone else promise that is greater than heaven itself? Eternal life. Okay. Without problems, without worries, with eternal joy. When God made the promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. Now people say, God sweared? (laughs) Well, that's a total misunderstanding or a change of meaning of words. As we have often said, there are many, many words used in the Old Testament or in Old Testament times even in the time of Christ, that means something entirely different than what we mean by that same word today. And that's one of the faults or pitfalls that people fall into when they begin to read the Bible on their own. They read it and interpret it using today's meaning of those same words. And you can't do that. All right, and get the correct meaning. You've got to understand what the words, certain words meant. All right. Now, if we go to the fourth, I think it's the fourth commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. That's one good example, and it ties into this in a way. Because the word name in that commandment means more than the name of Yahweh or Jesus. It means all that God stands for. In other words, don't take God for granted. God is God. And any offense against God, whether it's this big or that big, is still an offense against God. Alright? So the word name has to be looked upon as meaning far more than just what a person is called. And that's true throughout the Bible. The word swearing in this case is meant to imply an oath. Because if you're in today's courts and you have to take an oath uh, that what you say is the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth, and they call that Swearing in. 
That's right. And, you know, when the president is inaugurated uh, or <coughs> is uh, up for a second term, he takes the oath on the Bible. Or at least most of them do. <coughs> okay. All right. So let's let's go on here. When God made the promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself and said, I will indeed bless you and multiply you. And so, after patient waiting, he obtained the promise. Human beings swear by someone greater than themselves, for them an oath serves as a guarantee and puts an end to all argument. Of course, you know, up to modern times, uh, oaths uh, or contracts were always uh, signed by, you know, an oath or a firm handshake or something like that. Contracts were not signed because a lot of people couldn't write. So when God wanted to give his heirs, the heirs of his promise, an even greater demonstration of the immutability of his purpose, he intervened with an oath so that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to love, he would have taken uh, refuge, uh, he would taken refuge, might we who take refuge might be strongly encouraged to hold fast to the hopes that lie before his, us. This we have as an anchor of the soul, sure and firm, which reaches into the interior behind the veil, where Jesus has entered on our behalf as forerunner, becoming high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, I'm sure you understood all of that, right? The whole idea of the uh, oath is the same as once we have, again, accepted Christ. That is like making an oath to ourselves or to God. We don't, you know, stand up in church and, and in the pulpit or anything and, and make an oath. But acceptance of God as our Lord and Savior, doing it with the right purpose and intention, is the same as taking an oath. And God then promises that if we go through this projection, we are then holy and will be accepted into heaven. Remember, you've often heard the words that comes from both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Be holy for God himself is holy. You've all heard that, right? Well, a lot of people say, well, how can I be holy? You know, I'm not perfect. How can I be holy? Well, what it means really is that doesn't mean that holy people are perfect. We have that kind of idea that holy people are perfect. And that's not what holiness really means. Holiness is an interior giving of ourselves to God. And we carry it out, obviously, through our actions. 
And maybe some of those actions imply that we are holy or that we are perfect. But that is not the intent. Earthly perfection is not what we're after. It is spiritual perfection. And once that has been given to us, and it is given to us not just when we reach the pearly gates, but it is given to us once we've accepted Christ as Lord. And it can be taken away or we can throw it away by whatever we do. But if we are, if we remain holy in the eyes of God, that is an automatic entrance into heaven. Something that is really mentioned here, the idea of God cannot and will not take that away from us because that's the whole purpose of Christ coming to life and dying on the cross for us is to get us to the idea of accepting uh, the idea of holiness and working towards it. Let's go over this a little bit. So when God wanted to give the heirs of his promise, and we are all the heirs of his promise, an even clearer demonstration of the immutability of his purpose, he intervened with an oath so that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge in Christ, that is, might be strongly encouraged to hold fast to the hope that lies before us. This we have as an anchor of the soul, sure and firm, which reaches into the interior behind the veil. Of course, this is in reference to the veil of the temple that covered uh, or separated the main part of the sanctuary of the temple from the Holy of Holies, which was the tabernacle, where Jesus has entered on our behalf. It was the purpose of the high priest to enter the Holy of Holies, and he could only do it once a year, uh, the Feast of the Atonement. Okay. And for the benefit of all of the, of his followers, okay. And of course, Jesus now has taken that place and entered once for all the Holy of Holies. Um, becoming high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. This whole idea of Melchizedek, we'll talk about a little more next week. But please, uh, during the week, go back and read uh, the part in Genesis, I think it's Genesis uh, chapter 14, verse 18 through 20. Okay. Yes? Wait, 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 wait a minute. You said, wait, 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 people, please. These are important questions. You can't say Jesus, Jews who are atheists because that's a contradiction. 
Oh, they're Jewish by nationality. Right. All right. Was, was, that, was that true from way back with that Well, probably. You know, hey, 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 ladies. In every time period, you're going to have people who are sincerely religious and those who are lukewarm and those who are not religious at all, regardless of what they call themselves. You have that in the Catholic Church and in all churches. People who come because they really want to worship God, people who come out of habit, and people who come because they were, they were told to, or whatever, you know. So, yes, that was evident, obviously, in Jesus' time. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I just wanted to know that the early children of Jewish, that they were that, that was part of the... Well, they were, they were the chosen people, yes. But remember, they were, it's a good point that you're making, Laura. Uh, they were chosen for a reason. And that reason was to establish a loving community that would radiate that love and God's message out to all the other surrounding nations. And instead, they decided that no, they were going to make themselves very exclusive. Right? And even within that, a lot of people agreed with what the priests or the high priest uh, taught and said, and a lot of them just went along with it because it was easier, and a lot of them didn't. You know, that's human nature, unfortunately. Uh, but what we're trying to do here is, and of course, at the end of chapter 6, when it says God's promise of eternal life is immutable, means that there is no alternative. And that's something that a lot of people have got to get across in their mind. That at the end of time, at the end of the world, mankind is going to be divided into two groups. Those who are saved and enter eternal life, you know, and those who have rejected God for whatever reason. And they will live outside for the rest of eternity. For all eternity, I should say. Okay. Now, what does that mean? I'm going to tell you a little story. And some of you have probably heard this a half a dozen times because I've told it over the years. But it, it's sort of a way of talking about what the punishment of hell or eternal damnation is like. Okay. Not a measurement of, but what it is like. When I was um, maybe seven or eight, nine years old, some child within my school class, his parents were giving a birthday party. And from what I learned later through my mother, that person was only allowed, because this was during Depression time, was only allowed to invite five or six children to the party. And I was not chosen. And I was crushed. And a uh, seven-year-old kid uh, was not chosen to go to so-and-so's party. 
Well, my mother tried to console me, but that didn't work too well. You know, uh, the thing is, I was not hurt in any other way. You know, I lived with my parents. Everything was, was just the same, but I was unconsoled. That is what heaven and hell are like. Once the doors have been closed for eternity, and no more people can get in, and everyone else outside is excluded. It means that once you have seen the face of God and know that you can never return or enjoy that face again, the anxiety within you, the fear, the punishment, uh, mental punishment within you is like fire. And it is something that you will never, ever be able to get rid of because it is now eternal. But the worst part is you have to remember that you rejected God in some way, shape, or other yourself. You brought it upon yourself. God did not arbitrarily go down the line and say, these people are out, those people are in. No. Each person is individually making that decision on their own. But that's what free will is. But also that's what hope brings about. Brings you back, you know, to the joy of the journey that you are on. So just hold firm to that. With that, let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for helping us to be remember, reminded that the journey towards holiness, the journey towards your throne, is made lighter and easier if we hold your hand and walk with you. So give us the strength and the grace to always reach out and grab the hand of your Holy Spirit or your divine Son, Jesus, to guide us along during the trials that we face every day. So we ask your blessing on our efforts as we go forth, continuing to study Hebrews and James. And help us to understand how we might lighten that load that barrier, or whatever it is that keeps us from coming to you right away. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.